0: Hi, and welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. There's a lot going on in the health headlines these days, but don't worry, we've got you covered with expert advice and stories on the health topics that mean the most to you. This week, why counting calories isn't the only way to lose weight. Then, we'll hear important details about America's opioid crisis, including one man's story of how he went from pain relief to addiction. and. Does social media have different effects on kids' emotional health? Find out what parents can do about it. Finally, with our Tweak of the Week, everyone is a winner. That's all coming up. If you're working on losing weight, you may dread the thought of counting your calories and skimping to slim down. But, a recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association says that it may not be the only way to do it. In the study, there were about 600 overweight adults who either followed a low-carb or low-fat diet. And the researchers encouraged both groups to choose healthy, high-quality food like whole grains and fresh fruits and vegetables, and to stay away from processed foods and those with added sugar. And after a year, both groups ended up in about the same place. The low-carb group lost about 13.2 pounds, and the low-fat group lost 11.7 pounds on average. And both groups had improvements in blood pressure and body fat, too. Now, it is important to keep in mind that there's no one diet that works for everyone, and counting calories is actually an effective way to slim down. But the bottom line from this study is that you may not need to focus on that alone. You may have better luck if you think more about eating healthy, high-quality foods and staying away from junk and processed foods. Opioids are a powerful class of pain relievers. You probably know many of their names. Oxycontin, Percocet, Vicodin, Morphine, Fentanyl, and Heroin. Many people start taking prescription opioids to ease pain after an accident or surgery, but eventually they can become addicted. The transition from pain relief to addiction is familiar to hundreds of millions of Americans and their families. One of them is Avery Nix, who shared his story with WebMD as part of our special report on America's opioid epidemic.
1: I started getting like a little blue. Like I could feel like like my throat kind of constricting and stuff. I was laying in the floor. Um, you know, the whole scene, man, needle hanging out of the arm. I mean, it just didn't look good. Um, I was. Aspirating. My friends, when I woke up, had told me that like, they had to give me mouth-to-mouth and stuff because I like, wasn't like really being responsive. He tried the ice bath. I mean he tried resuscitating me. I mean he tried a lot of different things and I just wasn't responding. They called 911. I woke up, I don't know, I think it was a couple days after the fact and um, I can remember, man, it was, it was a trippy scene. I saw you know daughter's mother, her mom, mom's boyfriend, um, my mom and dad, the grandmother—I mean, it was just like, whew, dude. I, and and really in my mind, like it was like, dang, dude, I got caught. You know, I got I got caught. This was this is one of those real surreal moments for me. It wasn't recovery. Recovery wasn't the first thing in my mind. It wasn't like I got to get my life together. It was, I need to go get high again, dude, because I feel like crap. My first interaction with um, opioids, first encounter with any mood-altering chemicals, really. Um, I was 12 years old. I um, was just skating around the driveway and uh, broke my arm, had an accident, and they rushed me to local hospital. They hit me with morphine. It was like, like it hit me, and I liked the way it made me feel. It just, it just made the noise go away. After the hospital, they sent me home with uh, Tylenol 3. I can remember, you know, kind of manipulating my mom into saying, you know, just telling her, like, you know, man, it, it hurts. Knowing, like, I had a four hour window before I could get another pill, but, you know, she didn't know. I mean, it was the first time anything had happened like that for me or my brother, so, you know, she gave it to me. In the beginning, like, pills just seemed less like, abrasive you know it's like it's like I'm using like percocets and hydrocodone but you know I'm not like like doing oxycontin I had to hang out with people that were doing just a little bit like worse than I was in terms of like using intravenously or um, they were stealing some things from their parents or so I kept like justifying every time I used that I wasn't doing it like that or I wasn't doing it like them. or I had, I had picked up this compulsion to like continue to use like every day as frequently as I could. Take an Adderall to kind of like stay awake back on Roxy's mixed with benzos. Pharmaceuticals were extremely expensive. Heroin was just much cheaper um, than pharmaceuticals were. So it was like, I mean, why not? They're the same family. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I was just like, oh, let's just, you know, let's just go to heroin. Like, that's just because I want to do it. It was just because it was easier. At this point, I'm waking up at five o'clock in the morning, shaking and I can remember feeling depressed, like irritable. I was full of anxiety. Um, My face was twitching. Um, I was a little shaky and I just knew I didn't feel good. That was my first experience with withdrawals. This tape just keeps, like, playing over and over again. I like, you know, you need to do something, like, now to change the way you feel. I was feeling alone, and I felt like nobody could understand, like, me and what was going on with me. I was finding myself in more treatment centers, uh, residential, uh, sober living environments. I was finding myself kind of in and out of jail. It occurred to me that my disorder has was really starting to progress. It was either recovery or it wasn't. So now I am a recovery coach for the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse. In the same hospital um, where I experienced my overdose, I get the opportunity to be there for others that are just waking up from an overdose. And I get to experience what it was like for me like on the regular basis and just how hard it was. And 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 really like it strengthens my own recovery to you know, have walked through what I've had to walk through and, and still, like, be here, you know? Like, I'm so much more grateful for my life now than I ever was back at 17. For that, I am grateful.
0: That was from WebMD's special report on the opioid crisis. It's really an incredible report. I hope everyone will check it out. And we wanted to learn a little more about the topic from Aaron Scheinen. He's our senior news editor at WebMD, and he was one of the people who put the report together. Hey, Aaron. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I know you guys covered a lot of ground in this report. It's really amazing. You talked with recovering addicts, you talked with people who live with chronic pain, you talked with the director of the National Institutes of Health and former Congressman Patrick Kennedy. Give us an idea of the scale of this problem. I know people hear the term opioid epidemic, maybe they're not real sure on exactly what it sure. means. Give us, there were some pretty sobering statistics in the report. Give us an idea of what's going on.
2: Yeah, I mean it's, the the problem is really as as wide as the entire United States. I mean it's, it's massive. It's sometimes hard to get your, your arms around, which is why we tried to help our readers understand a little bit more. I mean we can start with the number 115 That's the number of people that died every day in America in 2016 from some kind of opioid overdose. Now, these aren't all people who go to get prescription drugs from their doctors and and abuse them. They are, um, that can include um, heroin addicts on the street who've maybe never taken an opioid as a prescription, but they're all in the same class of drug. So you've got that. um, A hundred million people uh, in America with long-term pain who need some kind of help. There's more than 200 million active prescriptions in this country right now for opioid pills. Wow. That means that that's almost, that's more than enough for every adult in the United States to have their own bottle of pills at home.
0: Oh my goodness. But
2: the number of people in chronic pain, like I said, is only about a hundred million. So people are getting multiple prescriptions or they're sometimes doctor shopping to try and get more of these pills. Um, and it's costing the country, not just in, in blood and in the people who are dying and, and the
0: tears from their families and stuff, but it's, it's a financial ruin for the country too. Absolutely. And this is just such a massive problem and it seems like it just has sort of cropped really up does, in the recent it. years how did we get to this point
2: it's, it's it's it was a slow burn and then it really caught fire fast and i'll try and explain quickly um in 1980 there was a couple of doctors in the northeast who did a study of of patients in hospital and their um, respondents to pain and how their pain was dealt with. And they found that a new class of drugs, these, these opioids, these, um, um, at the time were fairly new, were not causing long-term addiction. Um, they wrote a letter about it to the New England Journal of Medicine and that letter then later became the basis that prescription drug pharmaceutical companies were used to market their drugs to doctors. But the study wasn't complete and the letter didn't include all the information that you might need to to whether or not to prescribe these kinds of drugs to your patients. So they started getting prescribed more and more based on that sort of that letter, sort of an impetus, um, and it wasn't always an accurate portrayal of it. And then in 1996, the Purdue Pharma Company introduced a new brand of drug called OxyContin, which really Mm. was the opioid that really sort of set the whole thing on fire. And from there, the the drug companies and the pharmaceutical reps worked with the doctors, and the the prescribing just uh, blossomed. It really just took off. At the same time, that patient advocacy groups and hospital groups decided that the treatment of pain by doctors and in hospitals was what they wanted to call the fifth vital sign. It was Mm. that important that patients' um, pain be dealt with that it could cost hospitals funding if they were found not to be dealing with patients appropriately. So you had a massive drug company with a new drug on the market. You had pharmaceutical reps telling doctors it was safe And you had hospitals under fire for not treating pain and I hate to use the cliche but it really was at that point sort of a perfect storm and so from 1996 to present day those prescriptions just exploded but we didn't really get into our consciousness until about the last five or six years when the numbers reached this sort of epidemic proportion.
0: Wow. And, it, uh, and part of it does stem from the, a place of wanting to help people who are right. dealing with this kind of pain. Right.
2: I mean, ultimately, it was doctors and pharmaceutical companies and pharmacists or whomever and uh, realizing that people are in pain. There was a big lawsuit in the early 90s of a patient who had liver cancer who had terrible pain and said that the hospital wasn't treating it, and the hospital lost that lawsuit. Which led to the you know the hospital group saying, okay, you have to treat pain. And if you've ever been to the doctor now and they ask you on a scale of one to ten what's your pain like, that's where that comes out of. Mm-hmm. And if you take your child to the pediatrician, they show them this different faces,
0: smiley face to a frowny face. Right. That is from that effort to deal with pain. Obviously, this is has come to a critical point. People are starting to pay attention. What is the path out of this. Are there any positive things that you guys uncovered in your reporting that are happening? Yeah,
2: I think there's some. Um, I mean the video that you you played at the beginning is was, was extraordinarily helpful um, of a young man who was able to recognize his addiction and get the help he needed and is now helping others. But in terms of long-term and, and broad-based help, um, because the government now realizes that it is such a problem, pain's not going away, right? We still have to deal with people who actually have a need for for pain medication. So the government is investing um, $750 $750 million to the National Institutes of Health to try and attack this problem. Identify either an opioid that's not addictive or a different class of of drug that can treat pain. So they're looking at a bunch of different kinds that way. There's a couple of um, opioids in animal studies right now that have shown a lot of promise but they're years away from the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's some testing going on on um, uh, non-opioid drugs that are now used for osteoarthritis and back pain, okay. um, to see if they have broader um, usage for say you know, cancer treatment and that kind of thing. So, I mean, there is some hope out there on the horizon and now that it's got this attention and, and the government seems to be funding it, um, you know, th- there, is, there is hope.
0: Good things that are happening. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much for the sure. report and for coming in to talk with us about it. And this was uh, part of WebMD's special report on the opioid crisis and I hope everyone will check it out. You can find the link in our show notes. As more and more young people live their lives online these days, researchers are looking more at how it affects their mental health. And there's evidence now that time on social media may be especially hard for girls. There was one new study of nearly 10,000 10 to 15 year olds in the UK And the girls reported overall just spending more time on social media than the boys did. By age 15, almost 60% of the girls were chatting on social media for one or more hours per day. And that was compared to about 46% of the boys. But the girls who spent more time online at age 10 reported lower well-being as they got older. They were less happy and they reported more social and emotional troubles than the boys did. And this is an issue that a lot of parents are grappling with as their sons and daughters spend more time on social media platforms just overall. And that includes Mark Spohr. He's an editor here at WebMD. Mm -hmm. His daughter is now almost 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And about a year ago, she came to Mark and his wife to ask for her own smartphone. And since then, they've been working to keep up with her online life and how it affects her. And so Mm -hmm. we have Mark here with us today to talk a little bit about how they've been able to do that hey mark
3: hey how's it going
0: not too bad so what were the what were the platforms that she was most interested in and what did how did you guys sort of come up with rules around how you would watch her basically when she's using right. these?
3: so the funny thing was she had no interest in facebook or twitter <laughs> at all that's none. where <laughs> right.
0: that's where her parents are exactly <laughs>
3: right exactly and and she said you know that's where That's where the adults go. We don't go there. So she was more along the lines of Instagram, Snapchat, Musically, which my wife and I had no idea what that was. We had to get acquainted with that pretty quickly. (laughs) Um, um, So what we did was I keep an eye on the Instagram and the Snapchat stuff and my wife handles the Musically stuff so that, you know, we kind of split the split the workload a little bit. She uses Musical.ly a little more than the other two. so. Um,
0: okay. Yeah. So what were some of the rules of the road? Like, did you sit down with her and have this discussion or did you just kind of see how it unfolded naturally? We
3: did. We sat her down and we said, look, if you're going to use these things, number one, we need to know your username and your password. Um, you need to make your accounts private so that whenever anybody you know wants to follow you, you know, we have to take a look at it. You have to actually know the person, mm-hmm. you know, all the things that, you know, they seem like common sense now, but you know, it's, it's stuff where a lot, of, a lot of folks can really get tripped up. Um, so, Especially
0: with the newer things that you may be less familiar with.
3: Exactly, yeah. like I had to get acquainted with Snapchat. I had no, I didn't have Snapchat <laughs> no at No interest all. in Snapchat, no. yeah. <laughs> um, so there was a little bit of homework that we had to do mm-hmm. about how it all works you know and my daughter's a goofball so I mean there's not really a lot that thankfully for right now I mean she's 11 she's gonna be 12 soon there's not a lot of that kinda stuff that we have to deal with I mean there was I can think of one time um, she was one of the teams she was on one of the girls left the team and then decided to start blowing her former teammates up on on Musically and, mm, yeah. and tearing them down a little bit and, gotcha. you know, that their videos weren't good or anything like that. So that became a, you know, a moment to sit down and go, look, you know, this kind of stuff's out here, you know, know that, you know, this stuff can happen and, you know, if it does, you need to, you know, flag us down, let us know this is happening before, you know, and I also just say, look, you know, some, some kids are just... That it's just what they do, right. right? It's the same thing that we dealt with as we were kids. The only difference is now it's a different platform. Right. And now everybody can see it, mm-hmm. right? So it's, the bullying is, a, it's like bullying with a megaphone, right? Right. So you just have to make sure that they know that, you know, first of all, that it's not the right thing to do. Second of all, that, you know, yes, these people say these things, but some, you know, this is just the way some people, conduct themselves and, you know, it's not a reflection on you and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's, like I said, it's, it's added responsibility to be sure, but it's also, you know, like I said, it's just another platform, right? You know, kids were doing this stuff 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they were right. just doing it in a different way, mm-hmm. you know, have
0: to talk to them about it at that time as well. Right. And the good to... thing
3: is now we get to see it That's like true. back then, you know. You hoped that you heard about it. Right. You know. That's and, a good perspective. I right. like that. Yeah.
0: So when it comes to sort of, you know, these these instances where maybe somebody's you know, there's bullying going on or perhaps other things that your daughter's dealing with, how do you and your wife keep tabs on how social media sort of affects her state of mind or her self esteem? Like are you are you trying to ensure that she has a positive experience or are you just sort of teaching her how to handle a bad experience, or is it both? It's more
3: along the ladder. Like mm-hmm. if, because we don't want to, we don't want to scare her.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: We don't want to like say, oh, all this bad stuff can happen and you really need to be, because then all of a sudden she's going to be like, you know, hands off and she's going to want to run away from it. Sure. And I don't think that's right either, right? I mean, this is, this is a big part of the times we live in and you know, you need to be able to, you need to be able to handle it. So I think it's more along the lines of, if we see something crop up, and thankfully in a year we've seen just that one incident, really, the rest of it is just goofy pictures and goofy videos and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, we, we tend to think of it like if something bad happens, just, you know, sit down and talk and figure it out. And, and, and our daughter's really good about talking through that stuff too, so far. Gotcha. Um, Like I said, it's still kind of early in the ballgame. I figure i got about six months before, you know. (laughs) Before
0: things start to go down a different (laughs) path. Take a turn, yeah. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) Well, lots of great advice and a great perspective from somebody who's right in the middle of it. Thanks so much, Mark.
3: Absolutely, my pleasure.
0: It is important for parents to know what their kids are up to online, and you don't have to turn yourself into a spy. The first step is usually just to talk to your kids about social media and show an interest in their online lives. Check in regularly, see who their friends are, and teach them to be responsible when they're posting and chatting. And make sure they know to talk to you or another trusted adult if they see things online that make them feel bad or uncomfortable. There are a few basic safety rules for social media that all kids and parents should know. Make sure the privacy settings are on for each platform your kids are using, turn off the location services, and talk to your kids about never friending people they don't actually know. But what other steps can you take to ensure that social media isn't harming their mental health? Number one, tell your kids to take a moment always to think before they post something. And about all the people who could see it. Could be friends of friends, grandparents, future bosses. Plus, make sure they understand that once they post something, it is out of their control. Number two, just be respectful. Make it clear that it's never okay to post mean or embarrassing things about other people. And number three, this is really important. Help your kids take time away from social media and any screen every day. They should turn off all devices an hour before bed and keep screens out of their bedrooms. And make sure they have enough time for other things that are good for their health and self-esteem like getting outdoors, a hobby they love, getting enough exercise, and getting enough sleep. But what happens if you find that your kids have seen something inappropriate or upsetting online, or even posted it themselves? Don't panic. Have a calm, open talk with them about what you saw. If your kid did the posting, whether it was mean comments or inappropriate photos, take them through the possible consequences of their actions. If they're the ones being bullied or harassed, talk to them about what's going on and then work together to find a good solution. Sometimes you'll need to talk to their school if it's really serious. But in other cases, you may be able to just support your child and let the situation play out naturally. Now it's time for our Tweak of the Week. This is one simple thing you can start today to make your life healthier or happier. This week. Take a minute each day to write down something good that happened to you or something that you accomplished. It could be big, like you ran a marathon. Or it could be small, like you got out of bed 10 minutes earlier than normal. Whatever it is, you can write down these wins in a note on your smartphone or keep a list in a journal. Writing down these accomplishments is a good way to practice gratitude and to work on keeping a positive outlook. Both are great for your mental and emotional health. So give us a try and let us know how it goes. You can share with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this week. Thanks to everyone for joining us, and thanks to everyone who's subscribed to the podcast so far. Talk to you next week.